0: to us today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8 today, and, um, you know, I've referred to Exodus as the gospel of the Old Testament, and uh, the, the reason is that as we go through Exodus, what we see is, is such a, a picture of uh, foreshadowing, really, of of the gospel, uh, of the God's plan of salvation. Um, you know, we have the Israel, Israelites uh, held captive in Egypt as slaves in Egypt, to uh, slaves, captives to um, an evil leader there, in Pharaoh, and this is. This is a, a wonderful picture of who we are before we receive Jesus Christ as Lord. That we, the word says that, God's word says that we are slaves to sin. That, that our father is not God prior to coming to Christ, but rather his enemy, Satan. That we're living as part of the world and Satan is the father of that, that dynamic of, of the world. And... Uh, and so we have that uh, we have this picture of the Israelites being rescued then out of slavery by God in miraculous fashion, and so God has done for all of those who have received Christ that God would send His Son to be born of a virgin, then to live a sinless life, and then to to uh, go to the cross where He would be a sacrifice for all of humanity, that. That he would pay for the sins of all of, uh, of mankind. That those who would receive him would receive the promise of eternal life. Who would receive forgiveness and freedom. And so we, uh, we, see, this, we see this picture of the Israelites then being rescued miraculously by God out of Egypt. Where they enter into the wilderness then. The wilderness really is a, in many ways a picture of our, our span of life here on earth. Between the time that we come to Christ and the time that we die. Where there's a process of learning and growing. Learning to trust the Lord. To walk in obedience to Him. Uh, to, to learn that we need to rely on Him completely. To surrender ourselves more fully to His will. And and then at the end of that wilderness, we see the Israelites cross into the Promised Land, which is a really a great picture for us uh, of of the gospel. In that we we we're trapped in sin, we're slaves to sin, we're 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 dead to the Lord. Jesus Christ, when we receive Him, He's given a, He's given His life for us that we would receive Him by faith. And we enter into life, that God gives us new life, freedom from from sin and death. And, And we enter this journey then where we go through this life learning how to trust in Him, rely on Him wholeheartedly and walk with Him to learn about His faithfulness. And then we, at the end of that span, at the end of our days, we enter into this hope that we have had this whole time and that is eternal life with Him, the promised land. And, um, and so here we, in Exodus chapter 17, we confront yet another reality of that, of that journey for both the Israelites here, but, but also for us in our, in our walk with Christ, that there's a, a reality that we need to understand, and that is that as God led His people out of slavery, they were inevitably going to face enemies. Enemies. Enemies who were bent on on crippling them, uh, plundering them, destroying them. When we think about Jesus' words in John chapter 10, what did he say about the enemy? His enemy? That his enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And his people, God's people here, were going to need to learn how to fight if they were going to survive and even more than survive, to thrive. But it's not fighting as perhaps we might think of fighting, uh, as in uh, take up arms and run to battle, although that may be part of the equation. The primary part of, of fighting is what the Lord has already told them based in what He's already told them back in Exodus 14. When they were, uh, had crossed the Red Sea, they were crossing the Red Sea, Each, the Egyptian army was barreling down on them, and the Lord told them, hey, I'm going to fight for you. You just need to sit tight and be quiet, and I'm going to fight for you. And um, that, that is a foundation for how the Israelites were going to need to trust in Him that the victory belonged to the Lord, the battle belonged to Him. Now there's work to be done That that they were to give themselves fully to whatever God called them to, and we're going to get into that today. But ultimately, the victory lies in the hands of the Lord. And when it comes to the fights that we're going to encounter throughout our lifetime, which Ephesians chapter six reminds us, they're not fights against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. Because whether we before we came to Christ and now that we are in Christ. We're we're on we're in a spiritual war, and um, there are forces at play that our eyes may not be able to see, but that are more real than we could possibly imagine. So let's look at Exodus chapter seventeen, verse eight. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now the mention of Amalek here is uh, really important because the the Amalekites, the descendants of Amalek, are going to show up again and again and again through the Old Testament. Because the Amalekites, uh, Amalek himself included in this, uh, for hundreds of years, well, Amalek didn't live quite that long, but but his descendants for hundreds of years are going to uh, attack, harass, and plunder the Israelites. And uh, sometimes they're going to lose and sometimes they're going to prevail. And um, what we find in those moments is that uh, that that whether they win or lose is similar to what we're going to encounter today in that um, whether or not they're trusting in the Lord uh, for, for the victory. And... Uh, um, and so Amalek's name showing up here is, is going to there's going to be a, a reverberation of Amalek and the Amalekites throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, one of the people we're going to encounter here also, Joshua, he's going to be one of the main guys that's gonna, that this battle is going to be to come against the Amalekites. Um, not just here, but in future days. But let's look at the Lord's opinion here of, uh, of Amalek and just... The Amaleks were known, even beyond the Israelite world, um, the Amaleks were known to be a brutal people, uh, to be plunderers, um, is one of the names that was given by one of the other, one of the other tribal peoples uh, outside of the Israelites, was that they the na- gave the name to the Amalekites as plunderers. Um, they were a brutal people. Deuteronomy chapter 25 gives us a perspective of the Lord's opinion of the Amalekites and of Amalek. Deuteronomy 25, verse 17, it actually gives us um, what here is just says that Amalek came and fought with Israel, Israel at Rephidim. Uh, Deuteronomy 25, 17-19 actually tells us a little more information about what, that, what was going on there. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt. How he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. God's dis, the uh, the perspective of what happens back here in verse eight is that we have the Amalekites that come against the Israelites here, and the Israelites are in a particularly vulnerable position as a people. Uh, they're they're not in a they're not in a place. God's people are not in a place here where they're uh, are going to find it easy to defend themselves even even as a whole people. Uh, but what's especially Uh, disgusting to the Lord about what the Amalekites do here is that the Amalekites don't just come against God's people who happen to be uh, weary and faint-hearted, but rather they come against the most vulnerable of the population. Those who would be lagging behind, moving slower as the Israelites moved along. Who would that be? That would be those who are sick uh, or lame, Uh, those who are elderly, um, children, women. Um, with children, Um, that's who they attacked. Now, one of the things that we see throughout the Old Testament and the New is God's high priority. He places a very high priority on watching over those who are most vulnerable, whether they be within your own people group or outside of your own people group. In fact, foreigners is one of the, the folks that that God considers to be a vulnerable population. Those who are in a, in a land that's unfamiliar to them, in a culture that's unfamiliar to them, with customs that they're unfamiliar with, a the language they're unfamiliar with, they're particularly vulnerable. And so God places a very high priority, both with His people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to make sure that we, as a population, watch over those who are most vulnerable, the sick, the elderly, the widowed, the orphaned, Um, to watch over those in the population that they they are provided for, they are protected because they don't have, most uh, oftentimes there's not somebody there uh, to, to provide those things immediate to them. And so it's important for us to look out for one another in that way. And so it's particularly disgusting to the Lord that, that the Amalekites would not only attack his people who are vulnerable in general, but that he would attack the most vulnerable among them. And so there's a judgment that is going to come down on Amalek and his descendants as a result of that. Verse 9, So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses uh, here uh, goes to Joshua. Now this is the first mention that we have of Joshua, but Joshua is also going to factor very importantly into um, uh, uh, to salvation history, to to uh, the future here days that lie beyond this point of history, um, to the Israelites, uh, because Joshua is going to become Moses's successor. Moses, before they get to, they're going to be at the edge of the promised land, Moses is going to die, and before that happens, um, or right, right around that time as that happens, the, the responsibility to lead God's people is going to then be given to Joshua. And Joshua will then lead the people into the promised land, just as God had promised. And so, uh, and in fact, let's, uh, let's look at, turn to Joshua um, just a few books over there to the right, Joshua chapter 1, we see this transition take place. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. This was the charge given to Joshua when he would take uh, take over leading God's people and and be given the charge of leading them into the promised land. Joshua, uh, prior to that though, in between where we're at now in Exodus and, and that time where Joshua is given... Uh, Leadership responsibility of God's people. Um, There's something very significant that happens in Numbers chapter 13. Joshua proved out his faithfulness in in many ways. His devotion to the Lord in many ways. But one of the ways in particular that stands out in Scripture is in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, In fact, in Numbers uh, 13 verse uh, 1, we see this task that's laid out before them says, The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan. So this is the the promised land that God is leading them to. Um, He says, To send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So here, what the charge is given to him, and Moses passes along, is that every tribe is to send a, send a guy out. So there's a, a group of spies that are going to go out, uh, do some recon in, uh, in the promised land and come back with a report. Now, catch in there, it's not lost on Joshua and it's not lost on, on Joshua's compadre uh, 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 Caleb. Uh, but the Lord says there in Numbers 13, this is the land that he's going to give to them. Now, that got lost on the others that went in this party. In fact, if we, if we flip over in Numbers chapter 14 to see kind of how it wraps up here. Numbers 14, verse 36-38. And the men whom, jo- whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land, died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive. Why did they remain alive? Because they're the only ones that came back and said, we should take them. The Lord has the victory, is essentially what they came back and reported. That... Everybody else came back and said, there's, there's a bunch of bad dudes over there, and among them were the Amalekites, uh, the descendants of Amalek here, who harass them and attack them right here in Exodus chapter 17. And, and Joshua and Caleb come back and they, and they report that, okay, yeah, it's, uh, instead of seeing all the enemies, they see all these wonderful qualities about where God is taking them, And they have full faith that God is going to help them have whatever victory is needed in order to do what God has charged them to do to possess the land. And So we see Joshua as one who is faithful, one who is devoted, one who trusts in the Lord. As Moses here is trusting in the Lord. Now Moses says that he's going to take a position uh, before the before the fighting men here, he charges Joshua with gathering the fighting men and, then, and to go meet up with Amalek and that Moses would go out to the top of the hill with the staff of God in his hand. Now I don't think this was uh, some, some far away place where Moses, where Moses wouldn't, wouldn't be visible um, by the troops here, but rather a place that is very near to where the battle is going on where Moses is more or less in the thick of it, um, though not fighting himself, his presence is there and known among those who are fighting. And it's significant here that he mentions that he's taking the staff of God. This is significant because at this point in Exodus, the staff of God represents the presence of God. And so the suggestion by Moses here is that this battle is the Lord's. This is the Lord's to fight. This is the Lord's to win. And there's a reliance upon the Lord, an anticipation that victory would come by the Lord's hand. Now, Moses is taking up a position, really, of a, of a person who is uh, going to be, in those days, you know, that was before the days of radios and cell phones and, and radars and all that kind of stuff. And so that there would need to be ways for for um, the fighting forces there to communicate in order to coordinate for victory uh, in the midst of fighting. And so, um, even even if it's interesting, if you even look back in our own history into Civil War days, what you find was that there were ways that the um, that that they would use a series of flags and maneuvers of flags to signal. To those who were fighting, how they ought to maneuver, um, whether they're to, to retreat, whether they're to, to charge, what, whatever the case would be, um, that there would be a, a type of flag to signal them. Um, now, Moses is taking up a position like that, where Moses is going to be in a place where the, those who are fighting would be looking to him for leadership. Um, that he would be cueing them in terms of what they're to do. Now, verse ten here. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, I want to take take a moment here to kind of um, just really hammer down on something that I am just the more time goes on, I just become more firmly convic- convinced of it that there's, there is an, a very important truth and reality that we have to, we have to grasp in the Christian life. If we, if we want to go through life and experience uh, the powerful presence of God in our life, if we want to do what Jesus said He came to cause us to do, which is to be fruitful for the kingdom of God, which requires the Lord to be working through us, and not our own strength, not our own power, not our own brilliance, but rather the Lord working out His plan through us, which means we surrender to His will, and we take on His task, his purpose, uh, his battle plan, and we execute it with full faith in Him, trusting Him to be our strength, trusting him to to direct each step along the way and and if we are to do that um, then the, then we, we are Jesus said that he, His desire is that we be fruitful for the kingdom of God. Now, too many of us, we walk through the Christian life and we think, you know, we hear these tremendous testimonies of how God is showing up in people's lives and and how His powerful presence was manifested in a certain situation. And how they experienced the nearness of God or the powerful uh, power of God or some uh, miraculous intervention of God. And we think, well, that's not part of my life. Or we hear about, we hear about uh, the testimony of someone uh, who is, has devoted their life to God and we hear that God is using them to minister to people or to bring people to Christ or uh, to meet some particular needs of those uh, who, who had, had some need and God directed them and they were there and, and the Lord's presence was, was known in that moment and it was clearly seen. And we ask, well, why, you know, how come we never get to experience that? Well, this, this, this thing that I'm going to bring to light right here is one of the most foundational. If we want to live that life where we experience the powerful presence of God and where we are used by God as Moses here is being used by God, as Joshua is being used by God, and we experience the victory that God is going to, to have, then here's one thing that we need to truly grasp, and that is exactly what Joshua and Moses do here. It says, so Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek. They showed up for work. One of the most foundational things in all of Christianity in our walk with Christ is show up. If we don't show up, there's no fruit, there's no victory, there's no experiencing the powerful presence of God if we don't show up for work. Here Joshua and Moses, Aaron and Her, they show up. This is this is half the battle, right here, showing up. In fact, um, when I, uh, with my own kids and with other young adults, when I'm giving them, because uh, you know, it, we feel as we get older, we sort of feel compelled to pass on some advice to kind of help them avoid some of the things that we've fallen into along the way, right? And one of the things that I advise them is there there are, there are a couple things you can do that are so simple. That if you do these things, you're going to find success in life. Um, And one of them is show up. Just show up. When you're supposed to be somewhere, show up. Um, When the Lord calls us, show up. Whatever it is He's called us to, that we show up for work, ready to go. Now, it may be that there are many obstacles for us to accomplish that. uh, Including our own motivation. Motivation. And maybe we're weary of heart, but the thing is for us to show up. The second thing is this, and this is also um, one of the things that I pass along to, to folks as as uh, encouragement for how they can have success in life. One is show up, and the second one is don't quit until the job's done. And that's another principle that we're going to see. I mean, you can. Uh, I would encourage you go through Scripture and see if you can find a place where fruitfulness and victory are not linked to showing up and not quitting until the job is done i don't think you'll find a place in scripture where people experience the fruitfulness and victory of god without these two elements show up and don't quit until the work is done victory and fruitfulness for the kingdom of god are experienced by those who show up and don't quit until the lord says they're done Verse 11, Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. and Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. Moses here, he shows up, And he's determined not to quit until the Lord's victory has been known. Here's the thing, though, I don't think that Moses even realized is that, and the Lord will do this in our lives as well, that is, Moses here is brought to a point well beyond what he perceived to be his limitations. Moses is standing before, taking his position that he knows the Lord has directed him to take before uh, the troops, and his arms being held up, Moses takes a posture of a man who is appealing to, relying on, trusting in, even worshiping the Lord. The position he takes before 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 the people of Israel who are fighting, these men who are fighting, is one of... of calling on the Lord, really placing himself in a position where the Lord is, through Moses, uh, providing courage and direction uh, to his people as they fight. Moses becomes really a conduit here for God. Moses gets stretched beyond, though, what he even imagines he's capable of. He's fight, working to, to keep his arms held high. And as he does so, they get inevitably t- just exhausted, tired, heavy, eight, just painful. And he can't hold them up any longer. And so he lets them down to relax, to rest, to recoup. And, and what happens? Amalek begins to prevail. And so Moses raises his hands again to the Lord interceding for his people, worshiping the Lord, making himself available to God. And and the Israelites begin to prevail again. But eventually, even Moses gets to a point where he can't do it any longer. His, His strength isn't just beyond what he perceived his strength was, which is where the Lord will often take us. There's a point where we think we can go to which is not the same as the point that we can go to. Um, There's a a point within us that we think we can go this far, but it's not quite the same as how far we can actually go, is it? Um, If you've ever done any physical training, you've met this reality, um, that there's a point where you think you can run this far, but the reality is there's a point beyond that that hurts, that you can run to. right? And the Lord does this even in our own lives. that He brings us to places where He'll take us past the point we thought we could go. In fact, we'll find ourselves saying, Lord, praying to Him, saying, Lord, I can't take this anymore. And yet, He leads us further in. And we say, Lord, I can't do this anymore. And He takes us further in. Paul had such moments in his life the apostle paul in fact in second corinthians chapter 1 we see him mention one to the corinthian church second corinthians chapter 1 verse 8 he says for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is Paul's perspective of what they were going through. They they were so utterly at the end of what they perceived they could possibly experience here that, that they felt like they'd been given a death sentence. But look what he says after that. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many." There are a couple things that Paul mentions here that, that we see in Exodus 17. The first one is that Paul recognizes that God keeps taking them further in, further in beyond what they feel like they can possibly handle. So that the Lord brings them completely to the end of themselves so that they must rely on Him. That the only thing left, their strength is shot, Their abilities are shot, spent, gone. There's nothing else in the tank for them to give of themselves. And it's all the Lord beyond that point. And this is a point that the Lord brings Moses to. That Moses would understand that it's not Moses' greatness that's going to be a contributing factor to victory. It's Moses' surrender. Surrender to the Lord. Just as it is for the Apostle Paul. That it's that point where we are completely, Lord, we're, I can't, I, literally, I've got nothing left here. I can't offer anything. That the Lord, his glory and his powerful presence can, can clearly be shown and exhibited in that moment. And the sooner that we learn to surrender to him and rely fully on him, uh, the sooner we realize what a powerful God we have and that we can draw confidence in His victory. The second thing here that the Apostle Paul points out that happens here in Exodus 17, and that is this, that when God finally does take us beyond that point that we think we're able to go and we finally do get to that point where we really are at the end of of our rope, He provides for us, brothers and sisters, in the faith who hold our arms for us to help us stay in the fight and finish the work. See here with Moses that when Moses gets to a point where he physically can't, can't even lift his arms anymore, God provides two men who share in the faith that the Lord has the battle who hold his arms up for him apostle paul when he says that they are at this point where they're experiencing what feels to them like they've just been given a death sentence in order that the glory of god would be more clearly shown what does he say to the corinthians he says help us how are they to help them through prayer there are different ways that we that god will call us to come to the aid of one another but when God brings us to the end of ourselves, He will provide someone there to help us stay in the fight and not give up until it's done. And sometimes that's the way it is. Sometimes we're the one that needs the help, and sometimes we're the one that God calls to come alongside to help. In fact, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9-12 through 12, um, speaks to, to the importance of, of this says two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil for if they fall one will lift up his fellow but woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up again if two lie together they they keep warm but how can one keep warm alone and though a man might prevail against one who is alone two will sta- withstand him a threefold cord is not quickly broken we can trust that if we will If we will do the two things that we know to do, that God will show up and God will have the victory and that God will provide for everything we need along the way and those two things are show up and don't quit until he's done. Verse 13, And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Moses' perseverance and his unrelenting devotion to trust the Lord until the battle was won was critical for the success of God's people. We see that reflected in when Moses' arms were raised, the Israelites prevailed. When Moses' arms went down, they began to lose ground. The faith of Moses, the one whom God had entrusted to lead his people, was critical for the success of his people. And I think there's a, a message in this even to, to all of, of those whom God would place in a position of, of leading within the church, regardless of, of what that position is, whether it's uh, leading a, a Sunday school class or a small group, or, or whether it's uh, leading a ministry within the church, or um, whether it's leading, uh, being one of the, the spiritual leaders of the whole congregation, that that we learn and take seriously our role and the impact it has on the whole body. We're in the battle, but we have to understand that the battle belongs to the Lord. And of all the people that must understand that the battle belongs to the Lord, those whom God has pla- have placed in positions of leading His people need to, need to grasp this. The battle is His. The victory is His. And so the very first thing that we have to do in the, in the battle plan is make sure that we are fully trusting in Him and walking in obedience with Him. The faith and the courage of the people of God, of leaders within the body of Christ to show up and not quit until the work is done, provides encouragement and strength for the rest of the body. And the reality is that sometimes um, our faith is almost like a faith that is, it's almost like a surrogate faith. It's a faith that we can have for others, oftentimes. How many times have you been been at a spot where you're just weary and worn out, faint-hearted, they're just, you want to trust the Lord. You want to muster up the strength to take one more step and you just feel like you just, you're just at a spot where for whatever reason you just can't do it. But the faith of another provides just the encouragement you need to not give up. To keep you in the fight. And so it is with the body of Christ. There's a great, there's a great picture of this, I think, in Matthew chapter 9. Verse two. Um, such an uh, powerful reminder to me of how important it is to trust God not only for ourselves but also for those we love, and how our faith can impact other people. Matthew chapter nine, verse um, verse two. And behold. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. You see how this starts out? It says, Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed, and when Jesus saw their faith, he heals the paralytic. There are two things I want to look at here that we see uh, here and in Exodus that... uh, uh, well, well, here anyways, that we need to keep in mind when it comes to, to our work for the Lord, and that is, one, the impact that our faith has on others. That there are times where others are just feel too weak in their faith to come to the Lord themselves all alone, but where we as the body of Christ can come alongside of them to help them take the steps they know they need to take but just don't feel the strength to take. Where our faith can help lead people to Christ where they know they need to be, but they need the help getting there. Jesus recognizes, not doesn't say he recognized the faith of the paralytic, it says he recognizes the faith of those who brought him. I think this is extraordinary. And this is really the situation I think that that we are in with with non believers. That that apart apart from God's miraculous intervention, before we came to Christ, we were incapable of seeking God out ourselves. We needed the Spirit of God to draw us to Him. To begin to give us understanding. And this is where we as the body of Christ come like the friends of the paralytic. We bring our, our non-believing friends before the Lord in prayer. Sometimes it's physically to bring them places. Um, to, to do our best to bring them before Jesus where they can have a face-to-face with Him. Now, here's the other thing. What is victory? There's probably a couple ways where victory is measured. Why did the friends bring the paralytic to Jesus? Because in their mind, victory was that their friend would be able to walk. But what does Jesus do? What does Jesus consider victory? Well, he displays that by what he tells the man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Victory to Jesus from God's perspective is that the paralyzed man is now forgiven of his sins. That the paralyzed man now has a place of belonging in the kingdom of God. That the paralyzed man now has the hope of eternal life. This is victory in the kingdom of God at this moment. But what were they looking for? The rise and walk. But to Jesus, this is like cherry on top. This is not even, uh, you know, this is... This is the, uh, almost seems like it's an afterthought to Jesus. Now, I mean, he's Jesus. He has a perfect plan that he's working out here. Um, this is not a flippant thing he does. But, but he says, so that you can know that what I'm saying is, is true, that I have the power and the authority to forgive sins. And then he tells him, rise up and walk. But the greater victory was salvation. Sometimes we are going to be. Um, Brought to places where it's important for us to walk in step with the Spirit of God so that we can accurately measure victory. Because if we are only working towards what we perceive victory to be, we're often going to find ourselves at odds with what the Lord is working towards. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God instructs Moses here to preserve um, his promise and his judgment on Amalek so that it doesn't get forgotten. We saw that when we read that passage in Deuteronomy 25. The very end of that account was do not forget. Here, the same thing uh, is stressed at the end of this battle. when, When the Lord has the victory, what is stressed here is the Lord pronounces a judgment on Amalek and his descendants and the Lord says, Preserve this so that the generations do not forget my judgment on Amalek and my promise to my people. This remembrance... is is going to be very important because as we go through the Old Testament, what we're going to find is there are times where, where this promise is remembered, this judgment is remembered, and because of that, God's people will draw strength to trust in Him through when they come up against the Amalekites especially. But there are going to be other times where they forget. And instead of trusting in the Lord, knowing that God has pronounced judgment on the Amalekites, they will be fearful of the Amalekites and they won't trust the Lord. And they're going to find that they're going to lose some of those battles. This remembrance being preserved is for a couple of reasons. One, to provide an encouragement for future generations that are going to come up against Amalekite, the Amalekites. Specifically the Amalekites. Because God has pronounced a judgment over them and He's prevailed He's had the victory here and he'll have it again and again and again if need be if they will keep trusting him. The second thing is this. This remembrance serves as a reminder of God's judgment for those who do not fear him and who seek to do harm to his people. Uh, We see that reflected in the promise that he gave Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 um, where he he says that those who, who are going to to curse you, I'm going to curse them. You know, those who bless you, I'm going to bless, and those who, who come against you, I'm going to curse. This this remembrance is to be both an encouragement and a warning. And he says, specifically to recite this in the ears of Joshua. Why is it so important for, for Joshua? Well, remember, here Joshua's the one that's called upon to lead the men against the Amalekites. But what's gonna happen? They're gonna be sent again later on to spy out the land, and the Amalekites are gonna be one of the imposing forces that that are gonna be living in that land at the time that they know they're gonna to have to defeat if they're gonna take the land God's promised them. Joshua it's important for Joshua to remember the Lord's victory here, to remember the Lord's promise, and to remember the judgment on Amalek so that he draws strength and encouragement to keep trusting the Lord as he keeps facing the Amalekites again and again. Joshua would stand strong because he does remember who has the victory. And it says here in verse uh, 15, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The idea of building an altar here, we, we see that also in other, other places in the Old Testament. And it's, it's, it happens on uh, typically at the, after God has done something great for, for His people. And there's a pause afterwards set aside to worship Him. The building of the altar here is a means of remembering and worship what God has done. To remember that the Lord had the victory, what the Lord did for his people, to praise him for his power, for his might, for his faithfulness. Moses names the place, The Lord is my banner. Yehovah uh, Nisi, The Lord is my banner. Um, Now, there's a couple of of possibilities for what what this is meant to communicate about the Lord. Um, Perhaps both of them are true um, in the context. One is that the idea of a banner would be, calling the Lord a banner would be a reference to to Him as the one to whom His people belong, that He is the sovereign king over His people. Um, In other words, um, for the Lord's banner to be over his people is is akin to uh, an announcement to his people and everyone around that you mess with my people you mess with me uh, you try to take territory of mine and you're going to come against me that that his people who are under his banner um, in faith that they belong to him and they will be protected by him and provided by Um, by his hand and um, so there's that aspect to a banner but there's also the aspect to a banner as in um, think of Moses and taking up the position before before the fighting men there um, one of of signaling in in other words that um, the Lord is a banner in that who do they look to Psalm 121 I look to the hills where does my help come from my help comes from the Lord maker of heaven and earth so that, as in the midst of the battle, that the Lord is the one that they look to for direction and strength and encouragement to stay in the battle and to win a coordinated to have a coordinated victory. I think both of those things we see in the text here are are uh, um, are true. Probably uh, the. Um, Both of them obviously are are things that we would look to the Lord for as His people. That if we belong to Him, um, when the enemy comes against us, they have to deal with our our daddy. Um, Because He loves us. And He'll fight for us. If we will trust in Him. And as believers in the spiritual battle, Ephesians chapter 6 talks about if we're to have a coordinated victory, we have to keep our eyes on Him. We have to learn to look to God for salvation, for protection, for provision, for direction. Because the battle is on, and we're in it. Whether we wanted it to be or not, we were drafted, and we're in it. And the Lord is the one who leads us to victory. And we need to keep our eyes on Him for direction, for courage. If we don't keep our eyes on Him, what we're going to find is our hearts are going to grow grow weary. We're going to be confused. And we're going to be hesitant. But if we keep our eyes on Him, we will have boldness. We will have clarity for what our purpose is and where we're to go and what we're to do. And we'll be able to act with courage. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 reminds us that if we're to discern what the Lord's will is, what the next step is, Where we're to be says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Lord wants us to have clarity on where it is we're to go and the step we're supposed to take. And we can only have that if we're walking with Him by faith, trusting in Him, being transformed by Him. And His word is His word that we can draw that from. I want to I want to wrap up here by turning to Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three, because we have here an example of believers who do this. Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three. I want you to turn there, and I would ask you to to uh, revisit this this passage this week, and chew on this, and consider. Not just what the how the believers handle themselves here in the face of adversity, and in the face of uh, of trials, persecution, but also to consider right here, right now, where you live and where you are with the body of Christ, and what we're called to, and how we're going to respond to it. Acts chapter four, verse twenty-three. Okay, this is on the heels of, of uh, Peter and, uh, uh, and John being arrested um, for preaching the gospel. And in verse 23, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, in other words, what, what did the chief priests and the elders say to them? Essentially, uh, you need to stop. You need to stop preaching the gospel. You need to stop talking about Jesus to all these people. And there were threats undoubtedly made to them and anyone who would continue in that. So, what verse 24? And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, look at this prayer. So they're in the face of trial and persecution coming up against them. They say, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with, all, with boldness. In the face of persecution, these believers knew who had the victory. And they went to Him. And they stayed on task. They showed up and they didn't quit. They, weren't, they were determined not to quit until the Lord said they were done. And they prayed to the Lord for boldness. They didn't even say, Lord, take all these persecutors away from us. But rather they stayed focused on what the Lord had called them to. And they didn't say, make it easier for us. They said, they said make it possible for us to endure and to persevere and to accomplish the job that You've given us to do. I think these are the days in which we live. And increasing so with each day that goes by that we as the body of Christ have to show up, be determined not to quit until the work is done, and to know whom belongs the victory, and to make sure that we're staying on task by calling out to Him, asking Him to give us the boldness we need to stay in the fight and to finish the work for His glory. Ultimately, You know, what the next several years holds, what the next generation holds, I know not, but I know from Scripture that as the days go on, they're going to get harder, not easier for believers. And we must be dedicated to seeing it through and relying on Him and sticking together in the fight. Lord Jesus, we thank You for Your great power that is at work in this world through us, bringing the lost into your kingdom through our testimony. Lord, we we ask that you would help us to get up each day ready for work for the kingdom of God and to be committed to persevere both for your sake and for the sake of our brothers and sisters to persevere in the fight until you tell us we're done. Help us to to trust in you together. Lord, that that the faith of one another would serve to encourage each other along the way. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, Lord, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who leads us to victory, the one who has given us eternal life. Lord, what can man do to us Lord, who can separate us from your love? What do we have to fear? Lord, you are with us. And in you we will trust. In Jesus' name, amen. And he in whom I take refuge, who subdues peoples under me. The Psalm 144 just celebrates the victory that comes to those who trust in the Lord. Let us be among those who join with the voice of Psalm 144 and see the victory of the Lord as we show up for work, stay in the fight, and keep our eyes fixed on him. Lord bless and keep you.